0: This podcast was produced on the land of the Jar, Jar and Kulin Nation and recorded on Kulin land. We acknowledge the Jarrah and Wurundjeri people as the traditional owners and pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging. Sovereignty has never been ceded. It always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Where do you think the future of journalism lies? Oh. In
1: this podcast, um (laughs) thank you. Uh, And And Uh seen.
0: We recorded one episode and we peaked. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Listening to the State of the Fourth Estate, where we get to know the people behind the news, discuss the state of the industry, and what it takes to be a journalist. I'm Taylor Oates, and I'm Sarah Mishra, and here to discuss the State of the Fourth Estate, Janak Rogers, audio journalist for ABC and the SBS. Hello, welcome.
1: Thanks very much. Thanks for having me.
0: So you've had a pretty non-traditional start to your career. Tell our audience how you got started as a journalist.
1: The classic tale for this is that I was drunk at a, in a party in Paris, and that's li- literally how I got, I got I got my foot in. I didn't study journalism, and I wasn't quite sure what to do with myself at all. But I did, yeah, politics, international development, and I was kind of interested in working in NGOs. I knew I wanted to work overseas a lot, and I was always interested in storytelling in some form. But I channeled that mainly into social justice and activism and things like that. After doing a bunch of travelling, a bunch of kicking around the world, I was 30 to be honest, and happened to be in paris and i'd been working just like odd jobs there and i was at a party and met a dude who works for radio france and i was just pretty drunk and i was like do you you guys need people to work for you and he was like yeah well you're usually looking for people and i said oh can i pass on my cv and would you would you let your editor know and he did there was just a couple of tests. I failed the first time and oh. they said, hey, you, you didn't fail too badly, come back again in a couple of weeks and try again. <laughs> and so I tried again and um, got a job at Radio France. And so that was really where it started. Luckily, I'd picked up French, You're doing a lot of reporting in French and then translating or working on French mm. news wires and stuff like that too. Mm. So prior to that, the activism work and the NGO work I'd done, obviously dovetails with a lot of the skills that you pick up how to get people on the phone how to produce things how to just make things happen and I happened to work for a film company that was in Israel and Palestine that was doing human rights work so that start got me a little bit of quote-unquote media experience.
0: I Mm. love that you know what it shows take your chance shoot your shot and maybe (laughs) it'll pay off. (laughs) Yeah
1: I'm definitely a big believer in like you don't have to know exactly what you're doing but I think as long as you're trying to do interesting things at some point it'll coalesce into a story. But there's a lot of pressure when you're younger to go, mm-hmm. I need to, to project and forward script everything in my life. I like the idea that I'm holding the flame because as long as you're broadly interested in what you're doing, it'll become something interesting.
0: So why was it audio journalism that kind of captured your heart?
1: Part of it was my first bit of paid work was Radio France and they said hey here's a microphone go out and do some stuff I think in my heart like my, my you know my teenage self I read too much Jacques Kerouac I always thought I'd write and so literature and, and books were my first kind of real, real passion when I when it started to be interested in storytelling I thought about documentary film but to be honest I was just too broke <laughs> and when I was in my early 20s I just didn't have the money to do documentary film radio Yeah, it was more affordable and what I loved about it was just that intimacy. People making eye contact with you over a microphone is just a different, more intimate experience and I think that's been a very beautiful thing. It's mid-morning on a dusty street in Tijuana. It's a somewhat rough part of town known as La Zona Norte, the North Zone. We're firmly in Mexico, but just a few hundred metres from the US border. I'm here to interview migrants, many from Central America, who've taken refuge at this local shelter. As I wait to get permission to enter, a woman approaches with four young children. Each child carries an ill-fitting backpack that hangs down almost to their knees, and the woman is pulling a suitcase. She asks for shelter. She says she's from Honduras, but her papers were stolen, so she can't prove this. The staff at the shelter hear her out, but they apologise. They're full up, they say, and without papers proving the children are hers, it'll be difficult to take them anyway. Maybe another shelter can take you, they say. Keep trying. The woman gathers her children and their belongings and walks on.
0: In 2019, you visited
2: Tijuana, Mexico, to tell those stories of migrants. So tell us, first of all, what was happening in Tijuana at the time?
1: What was happening in Tijuana was the US-Mexico border yeah. and you had this phenomenon called the migrant caravans. And these were particularly people from Guatemala and Honduras who effectively via WhatsApp groups and just somebody having a bit of a brainwave. They were like, let's just get the numbers and overwhelm the security and move as a caravan. So you'd have these caravans of thousands of people. Like, you know, I think the biggest one was about 7,000 people, like all, you know, families, kids, all literally crossing into Mexico. There was a left-wing government in place Mm -hmm. at the time under Obrador, and he said, we basically wave you through into Mexico and you can stay in Mexico. So it meant crossing into Mexico suddenly became really easy where before they'd often get picked up along the way. So it just basically took the backlog of people who would sometimes end up on the border of Guatemala and Mexico and moved that quote-unquote problem up to the US-Mexico border. Because of that, you had this kind of logjam of people who were camping out and kind of overwhelming the immigration facilities up there. I was curious to do two things. One was, yeah, just to see what the culture was like in Tijuana around this caravan issue. But I was also interested in just painting a bit of a, portrait of the city almost Tijuana is more than just the the migrant experience that's happening there
0: what's really interesting is you go through some of the camps and you go through the city of Tijuana which is a really big like party city for Mm. a lot of US people it's a lot of like bachelor parties head up there and so you've got this real juxtaposition of Mm. people who are genuinely struggling and people who are throwing money and having the best time of their bloody lives how was it viewing that juxtaposition
1: there is something interesting to me about the contradictions of a place mm. because it's true. Like in Tijuana, it's wild that I could go and sit and have very intimate conversations with people who fled, that come with their families. You know, there's people I literally had bullets still in their shoulders from protesting. Oh. And then you turn off your mic and you walk two blocks away and there's music and mariachis and you're like, well, I'm going to have a taco and a beer. And I feel like that's part of the reporting experience, which is often under documented, under celebrated.
0: So the one thing that is drilled into us as journalists or even podcasters is that research is the most important step. Tell us about your research process. So what happens before you even set foot in Tijuana?
1: Tijuana is one example. Mm -hmm. I I guess I've done a a bunch of programs around the world. And first off, I'm a freelancer. I'm trying to also Mm -hmm. just find a place to land my story. Part of my research is like, who wants to buy this off me? Who's interested? For a program like Tijuana, I knew that I had relationships with editors that were interested in the other side of the world. Mm -hmm. And I was going to do something that was in the news that they couldn't do otherwise. Second bit of research is yeah just trying to triangulate work out who the players are i think your job or at least my job i feel often it's almost like a sample in the river because everyone's advocating for something basically are you a crackpot or are you uh, a centrist or are you a left winger or you're right are you radical are you conservative that research comes into just reading into things from a few different places basically mm-hmm. find out who are the stakeholders who are central to the story and who's peripheral. Once you're on the ground as well, things get a lot easier. I feel like I wanna come into it going, here's key stakeholders, but here's where I'm open to ad hoc encounters and ad hoc conversations and a sense of wandering. It's funny, I feel so just pretentious, like trying to think that I have like a philosophy towards this sort of stuff. But there's a few things that I've tried to do in everything that I do. One is to make sure that I speak This becomes value-laden, but like people from high and low. So people who Mm -hmm. are in a position of power, but people who are not in a position, people whose voices don't normally get heard, making sure that they they get equal footing. Mm -hmm. Because often we tend to just go to decision-makers and we don't necessarily speak enough to people who are impacted. I really like asking people who their antagonist is. Mm -hmm. Who's the person that they feel is most standing in the way of them getting what they want?
0: Your stories do have a real element of wondering. Mm -hmm. It feels like you're taking us on this journey. With complex issues like Tijuana, there's a lot of histories and a lot of play that have led to the issue that you're covering. Mm. How much do you already assume that your audience knows about the issue or the context?
1: The big question is who's your audience and you work backwards from there. Most of the stuff that I'm really proud of and I put a lot of work into is projects overseas and I kind of work on the basis that people have a glancing awareness that something's happening elsewhere but everything else you have to hold their hand for. So I don't assume, for example, that people know that Tijuana is the US-Mexico border. I don't assume that they know what a migrant caravan is. I don't necessarily assume that, that they know that Trump is building walls out there. Particularly in audio, you'd yeah, be a real guide for them as, as a narrator, and I'm helping to make sure that they see the key, you know, we talk about beats, but that they see the key mechanisms of the story as cleanly and as clearly as you have. And if you've done that, then I hope you've done your job. It's
0: almost like you're leading them through blind, where they've got every other sense enhanced, but sight is something that you can't use, and there's almost a challenge in that, creating a world purely through what they hear.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, mm. part of it is the sense of travel and the sense of like immersion in, in elsewhere. Mm. And sound does that beautifully. It's always talked about as being kind of like the cinema of the mind because you're not being force-fed images. Sound will give that to you. But you do need to compensate by being really clear about what are the fault lines of your story and particularly the political, moral, ethical dimensions of a story – You can't assume that people know that. And you also have got to speak to people that you disagree with and people who have done hurtful things to other people you've met. But that's just the nature of this work is that people come at it from very different positions. And if you represent that well, then the moral dimensions are self-evident. They they shine through anyway. You you don't need to send a message. Let the story become the message.
0: Wow.
2: Wow. That was good. One of the people you talked to in your story, Irania Garcia, the 35-year-old Mexican who was fleeing cartel violence, he mentions that he was afraid to leave the shelters in Tijuana because he saw some of the cartel members outside. In talking to you, this put him in some sort of danger, right? Because your story was going to be broadcast. In saying that, how do you convince a source to talk to you, considering that some of them may be in danger?
1: Yeah, it's a really good question. And this is again where radio is very forgiving. People are very scared of cameras often. And I really feel for people like you forget when you're in the media you get used to having the gear around and you're like oh headphones microphone blah blah Mm. other people it's a freak out like you know they're on camera it's a very scary thing so in radio I just don't encounter it as much most people are they're okay with the idea that their voice will go out although I just say I don't want to be interviewed and that's totally fine
0: were there any interviews that didn't make the cut
1: oh always always yeah yeah that is part of every project. You know, that the whole kill your darlings thing. There's so much that doesn't make it in. And there's there's definitely a sadness in that because you've sat down, you've spent the time with somebody, they've given you their story in the hope that it'll help in some way contribute to public dialogue or their own personal circumstances and then to go back and go, "Yeah, sorry, that just doesn't fit in the program." It's a constant constraint in this work. And and I'm quite lucky like I've chosen to prioritize working in longer formats. And I do it in my own time too. Like mm-hmm. I spend a month out there, I I really take my time. Most journalism you'll do you're filing stories that are two to three minutes long and you're doing one a day or two mm-hmm. a day <laughs> so a lot of stuff ends up on the cutting room floor and that's that's just part of it yeah
2: do you ever reach out to these people who you have had to unfortunately cut out apologizing to them i
1: do and I, to honest, i've gotten better with that mm-hmm. but even with my sps1 at the moment there's whole interviews that i just will not use and some interviews where i've spoken to somebody for 40 minutes and you'll hear three minutes of their voice but What I will say to that, and I'll say that to anybody who does come in front of a microphone, is that the conversations that you get to have form the foundations of your story. So even Mm -hmm. if it's not in the actual edit, for me, it's like the roots that helps you feel grounded in the story. In fact, it's so vital that you can talk to more people than you use.
0: When you're part of the story... And you're wandering around. How do you screen your interviewees, especially like amongst it all? I,
1: I don't know how I do it. Um,
0: <laughs> it's
2: the magic power. Um, yeah, it's the
1: magic power. How do I do it? So part of it, obviously, is part of that research of looking for stakeholders and getting access. And then once I'm there, I'm looking to cast for a few things. Obviously, differences in age and gender and experience. Some of it I still would like to keep open to that kind of those ad hoc encounters. Like for that Tijuana one, for example. I feel like uh, the image that comes to mind is almost like if you ever played Trivial Pursuit, but you have those Mm -hmm. little cheese bits that you put in there. Yes. Um, I feel like from a distance all I've got is that container and I've just got to try and find the pieces that actually fill it. Somebody who grew up in America, David Ruiz, was just a really surprising, interesting part of the the story for me where he was kicked out of America because he had a brush with the law and he arrived in his late 20s with not much Spanish and no way to get back home. And his story of turning things around, and there's a lot of people who've grown up in the States, they've been kicked out, and they end up in places like Tijuana and really struggle. And so for me, that was a really interesting piece to bring into that. So meeting David was really great, and through him, I met people that were in his orbit. And I didn't know about David's story until I got there.
2: My name is Omar Quintanilla, and pues i Salvador. Omar is another
1: El Salvadorian migrant, he's 28 and works as a rural laborer. He wants to apply for political asylum as well, but he's aware that his case isn't perhaps the most serious and that many young men are being sent back. Omar is open about the fact that he's mainly looking for better opportunities. The gangs aren't that active in his small village, he says, but there's just no work and no money. A year ago, I already tried traveling north through Mexico, but the authorities caught me. I was traveling
2: illegally.
1: When I heard there was a caravan leaving, I thought, I'm just going to go and try again. They can't stop the caravans so easily. There's too many
2: people.
1: Omar tells me that if he'd wanted to pay people smugglers to get this far, he'd normally have to pay $8,000, US an astronomical sum given Omar earns about $100 a month at best. Also importantly, Mexico's recently elected left-wing president has started giving migrants temporary humanitarian visas, which allows them to move freely in Mexico for a year. It's a big change and a marked opposition to the political tone across the border. For Omar, getting this far is already a huge win. I couldn't believe it. I didn't think it would actually work, but it worked. When the migration police checked our papers, I just showed the pass we had been given, and they let us keep on traveling. It's thanks to God and to the visa that we're here. Now, I'm just hoping for the
2: best. One of the things that we noticed in the Tijuana story was how you handled translation. Mm. So at certain points, there was a voiceover speaking over, translating what your interviewees were saying. Mm -hmm. And in certain places, you were paraphrasing what the interviewees were saying. Mm. What was the thought process behind this?
1: Translations is a really interesting one in radio because nobody's found a great way to do it. Like It's one thing TV does easily is they just whack a subtitle on it and you're good to go. Ra- radio, like, you've, you've just got to make a few more choices. The one advantage is you do get to paraphrase and paraphrasing is a powerful way to move a story along quickly whilst honoring somebody's voice. But sometimes as well, you also want to have word for word what somebody said. And I think it is changing a little bit. Traditionally, the way you do it is you just bookend with a bit of the language, whatever that happened to be in this case, Spanish, bookend a bit of Spanish at the top, fade under, have an English Mm. translation, and then fade up at the end with a bit more Spanish. And that would bookend to get a sense that everything within that was translated. Mm. I quite like it if I've got a translator in the room who's doing a live translation. I'd much rather take that mm-hmm. because that state keeps me in the scene.
0: With those bookends, I found that there were like words that you know, I don't I don't speak Spanish. Mm. <laughs> there were words that like I could understand Oh he said that in Spanish. Mm. Like, I don't know. a a word that I can think of. Maybe Tiana, for Mm. example. Like, There's recognisable words for people who don't speak the language Mm. in those bookends. Is that on purpose?
1: Yeah, yeah, totally. And I'm really apprehensive. Luckily, I do speak Spanish, so I could land those. I've done programs in Japan and the Philippines and India where I'm holding my breath because, yeah, you're going to have native speakers going, that's not what they said. And for anybody who does speak a second language and you see that in captions, for example, you're instantly alienated when you're like, but uh that's not what they said. There's a gap. And I think in radio, even if the majority of your audience is English-speaking, and for them it's just quote-unquote exotic voices from elsewhere (laughs) with intelligible English on top, I think you still need to be really faithful to what was inside that.
0: And I think you really are in this piece, because when you're summarising even, it is underneath, and you hear that, and I think... There's a real value in hearing the voice because there's emotion. You know, you're talking to one woman who's holding back tears as she's crying to you Mm. and pausing. And you can hear it in her voice. Mm. And that's so powerful. Mm.
1: Yeah. And if I had the choice, I would just get out of the room and and let that person speak. She was so softly spoken. And we sat on these steps, really sunny, hot day and that scene for her last probably a minute or two Mm. we spoke for about 20 minutes and she was crying for most of it um and that entire time you're listening and like even now i get a bit emotional like you're you're in this highly empathetic sort of listening mode you're also trying to like yeah just be really present for this human and accept your limitations as a human where all i can do is record this and try and be faithful to it and just immense gratitude that you were let me, being this kind of Aussie with a passport who's flown across the other side of the world with a microphone, and talk to you. I'm glad I kept you in as much as I could, but the, the fullness of those experiences, for me as a reporter, that's the tiny tip of the iceberg.
0: But that holds a place in you, and I think there's value in that mm-hmm.
1: yeah ah, oh, massively massively but there's also without like getting too tough on yourself there's also a lot of shame and frustration and a sense of limitation about your ability to impact people's lives through this I've definitely had people who, who talk to you in a pleading sense of going by telling me your story I hope this changes my life and I, I go listen I really want to get your story because I need it for my program yeah and because I, I like I value your experience and I, I'm here for it but this isn't going to meaningfully change things. I, I mm. hope it does. Mm. I hope somebody listens. You never know what ripples you're creating in the world. And and I think as journalists, we should celebrate the fact that we are creating ripples. We do have a platform. But, yeah, I don't know what's happened to her. And, like, I'll, I'll carry her story, but, but where to?
0: Let's talk about that ending. So you're standing at the US Mexico border wall at Tijuana, watching families reconnect over the border. In a moment that feels pulled from the movies, a man in a deck chair presses play on a boombox, and Imagine by John Lennon plays.
1: the US side, the border patrol sirens fire up. A couple of the patrol vans raced down the hill. Somebody had apparently crossed into an unauthorised area. Hector cut the music to see what was happening and the tourists on the US side jumped back nervously from the wall. Hector waited a while, realised it was nothing out of the ordinary, sat down again and pressed play.
0: John Lennon's beautiful melody resumes and we are left with a ponderous, hopeful outlook. I was so (laughs) taken aback by this moment. When you were in this moment recording, did you know that you had your ending or was there any other moment that kind of came close?
1: Oh, I had no idea how to end it. I met these younger guys who were going to jump the fence mm. and where they were going to jump the fence. I was like, I'm curious to, to know where it is. So I got in this taxi and the guy was like, he looked at me, are you sure you want to go where you're saying to go? Oh, no. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, he's like, I don't think you're, you want to go where you think you want to go. I was like, no, 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 this is definitely where I'm going to go. He's like, like, ¿cómo quieres? You know, like, like, I guess if you want to. I'm like, okay, no, no, I do want to. And he took me up and he took me up and it got sketchier and sketchier. And then it got to, like, we ran out of tarmac and there was mud. And he's like, I'm not going beyond that. He's like, aquí no good seguro. Like, it's just not safe here. Don't be. Uh... And I was like, okay, I'm here now. And I've got my camera bag, my microphone. And wandering up and there's people looking at me like, you are from Mars, like, what are you doing here? And I was trying to effectively do this kind of, like, piece-to-camera type thing against the wall there. And, yeah, it didn't make the program at all, and I probably put myself in a whole bunch of risk because I was... I, I wasn't supposed to be in that, like, in that barrio. Like, I wasn't supposed to be in that area at all. I think I was well out of my depth. But I did want to do something by the wall, so I went to this part of the wall. It's like a surreal artwork because yeah. the fence just tapers off into mm-hmm. the ocean. I was just walking around there, and I get quite shy and socially anxious too. It's, it's not easy to always go up to people and go, Hi, can I talk to you? especially like if you're a bit tired and particularly in second language, et cetera, et cetera. And I did a couple of interviews with people who were around there. But, yeah, he was... Just just sitting there playing music and so we started chatting and, and that scene just sort of happened. There's almost like a jump scare in that ending. Yeah, I'm yeah. so jumpy. <laughs> yeah. I so oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. oh, really? Okay. <laughs> yeah. But I kept it in because it was a jump scare for me too because mm. it is such a loud, screaming little alarm and it broke what was otherwise a surprisingly intimate moment. I think that's why I liked it. And I really was, I think I put that in the scripting too, like I was scrambling to have something positive to say or just some mm. way out of this story. That isn't just like, everything's fucked. Like that's, you know, you, can't, yeah, you yeah. just can't end there. No. As much as a lot of what you're feeling was that. And his interaction, I thought, was quite a human thing and yeah. it emerged as an ending. I couldn't have planned for it if I wanted to.
0: Now kind of reflecting on that, how does that tying of the bow at the end of this story kind of make you leave it feeling.
1: I like the idea that a story should not be like overly tied off, like I Mm. I almost feel like it's about like kind of ringing a bell and and as long as that bell keeps on ringing a little bit at the end, there's a natural kind of vibrational tension that holds Mm. at the end of a story I think that's what I was reaching for there because... So much of the sadness and drama of what was happening around those migrant caravans felt so definitive. And this little moment of sweet complicity, for that to be broken by the music, but then for him also just to sit back and press play and go, well, the world goes on, just never quite settles. Maybe that's where it sits for me. I
0: I really feel like you did nail that because it sits with you. Mm -hmm. And I think all great stories sit with you for a while Mm. after they've been told. Taking a step back to kind of digest what has just been shown to you, what has just been told to you. Mm. I feel like that's the key of a good story is that you're sat there going oh. afterwards <laughs> like the okay now I'm going to think about that forever
2: Let's start the second half on a little bit of a bummer According to a research by Edelman a recent report says that Gen Zers only trust media 30% and when I say media it covers news media and social media. This is a 5% decline from last year when it used to be 35% <laughs> which is so bad, mm. <laughs> it's, just so bad yeah. Yeah. it's been almost seven years since trump started his whole war on media mm. and fake news and you have been a journalist this entire time in fact you also teach in the field mm. how do you find it in yourself to stay in this field
1: yeah it's not even just a, like a challenge to us as an industry as journalists storytellers but it's a fundamental democratic challenge the fake news stuff was just about delegitimizing things that were truthful as opposed to foregrounding things that were artificially made and Mm -hmm. I think people of all walks of life and trades should be taking that really really seriously right now and they are but how we actually respond to that in a way that builds trust or restores trust I don't quite know I think there's clearly efforts to do that one is technological solutions to help combat things like AI that I think mm. will be even more insidious than some of the fake news stuff. That work is huge and hard, and how do we get there? So I think the tools are obviously increasing our literacy, being good at teaching this stuff, being good at the craft of engaging people's attentions away from all the guff. There's, there's so much guff in the world, and I mean, I'm not saying you should all be glued to the news 24 hours a day either, but the ways in which we tell stories, good stories, is hopefully one of our best hopes for keeping people on the side of the truth and on the, on the side of, of reality because if not we just get disassociated or we end up in, 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 you know, in these kind of tribal silos, all that sort of stuff. Yeah, some of mm-hmm. these things are, are too big to probably solve in this podcast, I suspect. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. But we'll try. We'll try. Briefly
2: on that though, being in Australian media, do you think that the Australian mainstream news media is achieving that or are they taking any steps to achieving that?
1: I don't think they are achieving it. Uh, are they taking steps? Yes. Are they enough? Probably no. The media, it's an umbrella term for a lot of people you strongly identify with and believe in, and a lot of people that you would struggle to want to have dinner with. <laughs> Journalists, there's people coming for a lot of reasons, you know, and yeah, like you say, there's a lot of political um, forces that shape what is called journalism, and a lot of it is of questionable merit, and I think it's quite corrosive. I think a lot of what's happened comes out of the Murdoch Press is genuinely corrosive, and the fact that we're all journalists makes it's quite uncomfortable <laughs> a mm. thing to, to think. So I think we've got to be quite clear about saying what do we want from what is a journalist and what are we trying to do with that work. The efforts to combat it, I do think there's a growing vocabulary mm-hmm. around that. We've got things like RMIT ABC fact check. These are institutional responses. You've got fact checking as a journalistic language now, which before you'd go, okay, journalism, it's photos, writing, video, and audio, but now it's, it's, it's all that plus fact checking. And, and I mm. think that there's a a bit of resilience and informational kind of integrity being built into the industry that way but I've been really interested in the hospital strike in Gaza in the last couple of weeks and even seeing organisations like the BBC and the New York Times who are amongst us most sober experienced documenters of fast-moving events, they've all had to retract and reinforce and correct their initial reporting on this. To their absolute credit, they do do that. Mm. They show their cards. They go, hey, listen, we overstated and we were too quick to label this and we've, we want to qualify our approach and we want to be transparent about it. So that yeah. transparency hopefully builds some trust in the work. But it's the reporting on those days and how those headlines came out massively shift an entire conflict, and so the responsibility is is still huge.
0: You mentioned how, as journalists, we're constantly plugged into the news. Do you feel that this can translate to being hyper-conscious or even a bit scared of the world around you?
1: It's it's both like a reflection of reality and a reality distortion field. Mm -hmm. I really do think that. It honours a real curiosity in the experience of other people and in the experience of political, moral, and ethical questions that are not necessarily your day-to-day ones, and I think that's a consciousness expanding thing. What it does is we have preoccupations that are not reflective of the the breadth of human experience and like so yeah we go for the car crashes and we go for you know if it bleeds it leads all that sort of stuff. I do think there's some nice shifts within journalism towards constructive journalism as well There's a growing vocabulary of by solely focusing on conflict that we may be doing ourselves a disservice and effectively doing reality a disservice. I encourage people to celebrate positive storytelling within journalism, solutions focused stuff and things that rehumanize and, and recolour The kind of darker lens that journalism, and I think rightly so, has as it's bread and butter, because you're trying to draw attention to things that aren't good in the hope that they can become better. You've got to read a lot of the news, but then you've also got to go for a walk down Mary Creek, look at the flowers.
2: (laughs) (laughs) You mentioned that journalists are covering this in the hopes to make it feel better. But recently, certain media outlets, it almost feels like they're not trying to do that maybe i speak that as agnz or who has lost trust mm-hmm. in uh, news media before and who's trying very hard to gain it back by entering the field other than the respected old institutions bbc certain organizations fox and then you have a lot of more doc run organizations it does not feel like they're trying to do that it feels like they're just trying to beat down a broken horse
1: journalism it's a function of power and these things are all tied to political forces mm-hmm. that are at play i think part of what hopefully we do well as journalists is that we're literate enough to know where our information is coming from. We're feeding into that information economy in an intentional way, which is already a head start. It's already That's already more true. than your average sort of civic participation that doesn't know who owns the Age, that doesn't mm-hmm. know who owns the Australian, or who doesn't know, you know, the difference between Fox News and GB News and SBS and ABC like and I think we're doing the work by being literate on this sort of stuff and I wish everyone was a bit more literate on it and the other thing is just to realize that that these are contests of power and ideology Mm. and that's not to say you can't work for Fox and do some great work but just knowing that ideology is part of it the one thing I'd say to hopefully still celebrate and encourage the work is that at least you're in the thick of it and you have a platform you know Mm. that's true you're not purely subject to this information you're really able to engage to feel like you're part of the political process and and weigh in on an event i was just like a junior producer at radio national on RN drive but as a producer you do a lot of research you write a brief and you write a lot of questions that are then handed on to your presenters the presenter at the time was walida lee and i was at this letter writing workshop seeing people trying to write a letter to their local member to try and get some political change And I had just written questions that were directly asked to the Prime Minister, like that week. he'd asked them. But even as a producer, I felt really close to politics. We actually get to ask these questions to Mm -hmm. these people directly with the scrutiny of a national audience. And that's a huge, huge privilege still and a huge incentive to wade into it.
2: Thank you for that. I feel like I kind of need people to tell me. That's very hopeful.
1: Yeah, totally. Yeah, you may as well kind of be on the field having a kick rather than just cheering from the sidelines or not even knowing what the the rules are. (laughs) Again, just with civic literacy and where we're at, like, we most of us don't don't know the rules. But as a journalist, yeah, you get to actually muck in.
0: Let's move on to this beautiful audio piece that you brought in by Jack Hitt for This American Life.
2: Of course, Hamlet itself is kind of a weird play. The central character is in a situation that very few of us are ever going to find ourselves in. His uncle killed his father and then married his mother in order to become the king. The play is four hours long. The main conflict of the play is a guy debating in long, complicated monologues whether or not he should kill somebody. What is there in that for most of us to relate to? Unless, of course, we happen to be murderers. And what would the play be like if it were actually performed by murderers and other violent criminals? What would they see that the rest of us do not? Well, today in our program, we answer that question, and the answer is a lot. Over the course of six months, reporter Jack Hitt visited prisoners at the Missouri Eastern Correctional Center, which is a high-security prison, from their first rehearsal to their last performance of Act Five of Shakespeare's Hamlet.
0: What did you enjoy about this piece?
1: I'm a long time This American Life fan, but Act Five always just rises to the top of my consciousness as just a beautifully crafted, thoughtful, tender, challenging, funny experience, yeah. I think what This American Life did, they just moved the dial so significantly to really honor people's stories, both in terms of like where they sit structurally within as part of power, these happen to be prisoners, but also who they are as humans, and to take those stories with a lot of tenderness and care and attention. You know, the shitty version of that story would have lampooned these people doing a bad version of a good play, whilst also noting the fact that they're all murderers the good version of it, which is what they happened to do, was to draw new meaning out of prison life, new meaning out of out of Shakespeare. And in terms of the craft of storytelling, for me, they just built new structures for us to then work off ourselves. Well, this is why I, I guess I teach podcasting, and I love it. it just opened up people's attention spans to a depth of storytelling that we weren't getting elsewhere, and hence the phenomenon at its best. Like, I think for a lot of people, podcasting is... You know, a couple of dudes talking tech and laughing at each other and bless them. But for me, I, I've always been drawn to the, the, the crafted storytelling stuff.
0: One of the interesting elements is that it starts out with this back-to-back of classic Hamlet lines to be or not to be performed by different people and you kind of think, oh, where is this going? We're going to talk about Shakespeare. Very exciting. And then suddenly it shifts and you're like, hmm, why is it bad now why are they (laughs) bad actors and suddenly it's exposed that these people are at a table read in a prison and the dynamics that are there are just so different to what an actor would be doing and they're bringing inspiration from something Mm. that you know matt damon i don't know why that's the person who came into my head but sure he wouldn't have this experience of physically taking a man's life Mm. and they had a group of hamlets which i thought was really interesting Mm. as well because it's a big part so fair enough but a lot of those people were talking about how You know, they've seen the light from a man's eyes go. They know that contemplation. And also there was one, I can't remember his name, he couldn't understand why it was so contemplative. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was a really interesting point to put in there, that the place that they're coming from is so different. And I think, in a way, Hamlet really encapsulated that.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And the power of story, like, there's that whole ancient, just wonderful DNA to stories that, that we're lucky to be a part of in this work. Act five celebrates that not only in the way it tells its story but the way that they manage to inject meaning new meaning and new insight into a story that's Brazilian as Hamlet they make everything seem more alive Deeper, more resonant. They lift you to want to pay more attention to life. I think complacency is our biggest kind of enemy in terms of our attention. That yeah. distraction, I feel like between those two, a lot of human potentials, including mine, <laughs> is being washed down the toilet. But good stories, I feel like they, they kind of elevate me back to going, oh, everything's worthy of attention and, and there's great beauty in that.
0: I feel like that brings us perfectly into our last point. You teach audio and broadcast journalism at RMIT. You're getting to see kind of the next wave of journalists as they develop. Mm-hmm. Where do you think the future of journalism lies? Oh,
1: in this podcast. Um <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And scene. And scene. <laughs> yeah. That's the, end. That's yeah, the yeah. ending. We yeah. recorded
0: one episode and we peaked. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah um. I mean, I'm, I'm kidding, but genuinely, yeah, in moments like this, I do think it's so exciting seeing people doing the work and making stuff happen. I think we're really lucky that generationally as well, I know there's a lot of talk about the changes in the industry, etc. but 99% of those changes are in favour of a quote-unquote younger generation. Mm. They really are. The people who've lost their jobs, bless, are yeah, boomers who didn't want to learn how to use tech properly. You've got a generation coming out now that's very good at it, and uh, I'm genuinely excited about yeah, seeing people like you not just run your projects now but become the executive producers and the editors and the CEOs because you're taking all those skills upwards with you and that's genuinely exciting. I'll, I'll be in your wake pretty soon and, and I'm very excited about that sort of stuff.
0: Well, we've discussed the state of the fourth estate. Thank you so much for joining us, Janak Rogers.
1: You're so welcome. It's absolute pleasure.
0: The State of the Fourth Estate podcast is co-produced by Sura Mishra and Taylor Oates. Music by Wessa, branding by Lee Barky and social content by Yara Muner.